one thing that we wanted to talk about on this show, and it was actually something that I was like, you know what, we should probably start the show off with this, is there are still seniors right now that are being challenged with uh, our emergency rooms, wait times, and the denial of potential medications that can help them. One senior in Ontario saying that she ended up in the ER after being denied a COVID treatment, this Paxlovid, which is a new oral way of ingesting the antivirus that can help you fend off COVID-19. Here to talk about this, Dr. Lynn Filiatro, who's kind enough to join me this morning. Doctor, good morning. Good morning. Let's talk about this medicine because I know that we've all been getting our jabs or many of us have been getting our jabs over the last couple of years, but an oral medication, not the first, but one that is definitely getting a look here in this province. That's correct. It's actually been uh, approved since uh, December of 2021. But unfortunately, if you live in BC, you're the least likely to get access to it compared to anyone else in Canada. Because our province has a very restrictive uh, policy as to who can get, uh, get it prescribed to them. And that's what our group, Protect Our Province BC, is trying to call attention to, that we need to um, broaden the eligibility criteria so more people can benefit from this antiviral medication called Paxlovid. What's the holdup? You know, it's a, it's a great question, um, and I don't have the answer, because even the data, if you look at the data from BC, um, if you look at people that have severe outcomes, uh, the group 60 to 69 years of age have had as much, as many ICU admission in um, cumulatively total since this pandemic started than the 70 to 79 years old. And in BC, they are restricting uh, Paxlovid for people that are fully vaccinated, so three doses uh, to the 70 and older. And And you need to have three medical conditions in order to be eligible for the medication. Versus other provinces, you don't need, uh, you can be 18 and over and have only one uh, um, criteria, one uh, medical condition. And some provinces like PI, if you're 50, no medical condition uh, required, you can get Paxlovid if you test positive for COVID. Well, let's talk about the drug itself here for a second, doctor, because right now I've heard, you know, different reports, one coming from Scott Roberts, who's a doctor at Yale Medicine, saying that he says that this is, quote, a game changer because it's a, an effective oral antiviral pill that he says shows a clear benefit. So we've been talking about, you know, going and getting your, you know, jab number one, jab number two, jab yep. number three, and all of these things. Four. Four, that's correct. And, and we're also trying to keep our emergency rooms, I guess you would say, less than over capacity. This seems to fit the profile. So I guess my question is, is it just something where the government's kind of trying to wait to see what other provinces are doing? Or is it a a budget thing? What am I missing? I don't know what you're missing. This uh, province, if you remember, has always been slow at giving us the tool to protect ourselves against COVID. Think about the rapid antigen test last year. Yeah. Okay. And then think about the fourth dose. My group at Protect Our Province BC said in July 
instead of throwing out the vaccine doses, give it to people that want it that are more than six months out of their uh, third dose. And no, they said, no, we want to roll out the next booster for COVID along with the flu shot in the fall. And you know how well that's gone. So here we are with Paxlovid. We're the province that has the most restriction in terms of access to it if you're fully vaccinated. If you're not fully vaccinated or if you immunosuppress, no problem. You can get access to that. And I would tell your listener um, that there is now a preemptive prescription. So you don't need to test positive to get your hand on Paxlovid if you are immunocompromised. So you're in one of the 200,000 people in this province that are clinically extremely vulnerable or um, if you're not fully vaccinated for whatever reason, if you haven't had three dose, you can also get your hand on Paxlovid. And it's particularly important now because we're getting into the holiday season and right now the risk in BC for getting COVID is actually severe. So uh, Tara Moriarty, who is the only one that gives you good data on COVID in this province, suggests that at this moment, one in 65 people are infected with COVID. So, so for the people that are now eligible, we're saying get your hand on a preemptive prescription. You can get it via uh, primary care provider. You can get it by uh, specialists, particularly with the clinically extremely vulnerable. But what Protector Province BC is trying to do right now is nudging the government to say, this is a great drug. It needs to be more readily accessible to people uh, that are fully vaccinated and are younger and, you know, drop all these conditions, these medical conditions as a requirement to get access to it. Rob, the other thing I want to make a point of is in this province, we only talk about hospitalization, ICU admission and death. But the real issue with COVID, it's not the acute COVID, it's the medium COVID and the long COVID. So this medication, there's study now that's that's showing that it can decrease your risk of getting long COVID and getting um, post-COVID medical condition like heart disease, blood clots, kidney failure, liver failure, etc. So again, to your point, decreasing the burden on the healthcare system now and into the future. I appreciate your time today and thank you for bringing this to our attention and uh, we'd love to have you back. Have a safe holiday, everybody. Rob Faye filling in for Mike Smith. Good morning, Vancouver. A couple minutes after 10 o'clock. I hope you're doing well and uh, driving safe. Last time I was listening to CKNW was just the other day. I was waiting to get my cavity filled. <laughs> I was like, hey, you got 980 on. They're like, yeah. I'm like, ah, I'm going to be working there in a couple of days. They're like, yeah, sit down. This might take a while. By the way, cavity fillings just still, still one of the worst ever. I'm old enough that I've still got the silver fillings. They don't do that anymore. Everybody's got the nice white ones that you don't even know that you've had a cavity. Anyways, you know what? When it <laughs> We were talking about segues earlier in the show. I have absolutely no segue to get from a silver cavity filling to our next guest, our technology and digital lifestyle expert from HandyAndyMedia.com. I am joined by Andy Barrar. Andy, good morning. How are you? I'm good, Rob. How are you doing? Oh, I'm okay. I, I guess the great segue would be like, what can I use so that my teeth don't hurt when I'm using technology? But anyways, um, Andy, 
I know that if I'm ordering something online, it is absolutely unequivocally not going to make it here by Christmas. But what, in your estimation, was the hot tech item for purchase for Christmas this particular year? I think for for kids, if you're about, say, 10 to 12 and you're a gamer, it was the PlayStation VR headset. Um, I actually had someone reach out to me looking for it. And then so I went down this search and I couldn't find it anywhere, Rob. It's kind of like the Tickle Me Elmo uh, of this year, at least on on the gaming side, because we all know gaming is huge. It's not just for kids anymore. The average gamer is about 38, 39 years old. So uh, gaming is a is a big one. And I think that VR headset for play, the PlayStation uh, console was the big hit this year. Did you just say that the average gamer is nearly 40 years old? Yes, and what's, that's, that's what's interesting is the, the like, adults, the parents, are now gaming with kids. So everybody can enjoy these games because the, the, the parents kind of grew up with gaming and they're mesmerized by huh. the, the graphics that they have. You know, I remember, like, 8-bit graphics, 16-bit graphics. So uh, you can only imagine how lucky these kids are these days to have the games that they do. Oh, Atari 2600 Baseball was one of the first games. Lock and Chase for Intellivision. I remember the 8-bit very well. You know what? I will say this. I do game with my kids. That That is one thing I can say. I'm in my late 40s, but I have an out. I was the rink announcer. Well, I'm still the rink announcer for NHL hockey for EA Sports. Oh, so yeah. my son, when he was a teenager, would bring his buddies over. We'd turn the TV down, and I would do the game for them in-house. And again, a, a major clout, I think, is what the kids call it today, but... It was good, and now I guess I realize that yeah, you can be in your late thirties and game and game and game. I just didn't know that that was the the median age. <laughs> well, it's funny that you mentioned that that NHL series. I started playing that when I was twelve years old, and it was only just at the beginning of COVID that I completely retired. It was like this addiction that I held all through my childhood into my adult years. And when COVID started, I'm like. You know, this is the I got to I got to get a new hobby because I'm going to go down this NHL rabbit hole online. And a lot of people did uh, gaming, you know, grew a lot during the pandemic. But I thought that was the year I should actually officially retire from my NHL online career. Not not a real one. I still use the old controls. They give you the options where you can use like 12 different buttons to do spin or whatever. I just use A, B, up, down and I'm good. Oh, that, that, those controls were from NHL 1994. 94, so that's correct. That was, that was a great year. <laughs> that was, was my year. favorite NHL of, of all time. Still at Hartford, Quebec. I mean, you had all the old teams in there. Um, yes. I want to switch gears because I know that social media right now is just uh, a buzz, a blaze. And it's not all for the right reasons. Elon Musk, since he's taken over Twitter, has just been, I don't want to call it a couch fire per se, but I just want to say... As a guy that I thought might come in and do some good, he has done anything, buddy. He's been very divisive as the CEO of Twitter. But then he puts out a poll the other day, Andy, that says, should I still be CEO? And then more people voted that he should step down. Then, no, you keep going. 10 million people. Andy, the question is, wasn't he going to step down to CEO anyway? And is he good or bad for Twitter? Well, at the end of the poll, 17 million people voted on this and 57.5 people voted that he should leave. However, Elon has this history of putting out these Twitter polls, but it looks like these decisions have been made long in advance of, yes. of the poll. 
Uh, he did this once about his shares in Tesla, whether he should sell one-tenth of it. He did it again with Donald Trump, whether Donald Trump should be reinstated. But we know they already had previous meetings talking about that before the poll went out. And in this case, where he was saying, should I resign or step down from, from Twitter? Uh, he told a Delaware judge about two weeks ago in court, on record that he was looking to spend less time at Twitter. So he kind of already had this, you know, his idea of what he was going to do before the poll. What was interesting is when he made the poll, he kind of went silent. He went dark on Twitter. So everybody was wondering what was going on. But then he said in the future, for all future polls that relate to policy decisions on Twitter, only Twitter blue subscribers. So the people that have to pay to use Twitter mm -hmm. are going to be able to vote in the future. It's a quick way of making a buck, isn't it? That's a great advertisement. I mean, what I'm really interested about this is if that goes through, I want to see how many people are voting because that gives you an idea of how many Twitter blue subscribers there are. Because we have to remember, this is a private company. He doesn't have to release that data. But if he pulls a poll out, I will be looking at those numbers because I'm just fascinated by the people that are paying to be on Twitter. I want to know the demographic information. Is it content creators? Is it companies? Like who is paying? eight bucks a month to be on Twitter. That is something I've been really curious to, to learn more about. You know, the one thing when it comes to Twitter is you're always trying to think, you know, how could we skew younger? How can we get that next generation hooked? I mean, I would say everybody in their 30s, 40s, and 50s is all in, 60s even as well. But it's that teenage slash early 20-somethings that are going to sit back and say, okay, well, what is this all about? Do you see that Twitter's going to be able to bridge that divide? Or do you think that this is on borrowed time and at some point it's just going to phase out? Well, if you're Elon Musk and you're looking at what's going on with TikTok and all the, the concerns, security yeah. concerns that people are having on TikTok, this is a great opportunity to try to lure them to Twitter because Facebook is trying to do that. They're trying to be cool again to try to get the young people over. But I think Elon might have a better chance just because everything is, he's just kind of ripping the carpet underneath as he's going week to week. The thing that I think he's going to try to do, and this is a big shift we're seeing in social media, is something called social commerce. It's really like the shopping channel 2.0, where these all these influencers are going to now influence shopping decisions and work with brands to basically make money. And Deloitte predicted that's going to be a trillion dollar industry. They're already big in China on their TikTok version. That's already happened in Asia. And I think that's going to happen in North America. And Elon's looking at that, trying to get Twitter to be kind of a commerce place where you're buying and selling goods. I think that's where he really wants to see it go in the future. So there's a method to the madness. Andy, thank you for stopping by today. I appreciate all that insight. Thanks, Rob. Rob Fayan for Mike Smith. We'll do it today. We'll do it once again tomorrow. Thank you for making me a part of your morning. You know, <laughs> listen to the news. And it makes me want to pour a drink. I know it's a little, what is it, 1030? Probably a little early to pour a drink. But you know what? I better do it now because in 2023, it's going to cost me more. It's going to cost me even more to pour said drink. But it's a hidden tax that is coming your way, which I think you need to know about before you go out and you buy your spirits in a couple of days' time. Why is Ottawa spike? What were they doing this for? Why are they adding another tax again? Robin Spear Prairie Director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation, kind enough to join me. Robin, please, please explain to me why Justin and co. want to put an additional 6% on my liquor and beer. <laughs> That's right, Rob. And it might, might be morning in BC, but it's 5 o'clock somewhere, right? <laughs> Indeed it is.
Yeah, they, uh, you know, many of your listeners are probably out and about today, notwithstanding the the weather, uh, doing their last minute Christmas shopping, getting some supplies, maybe at the liquor store for Christmas, for New Year's. They might want to stock up even more because on April 1st, no joke, the federal excise tax on beer, wine and spirits in Canada is going to go up 6.3%. Massive tax hike. Um, and that's going to be applied uh, across the board. The, the federal excise tax is the tax that the government of Canada puts on the manufacturing facility where your favorite beverage product is manufactured. Um, and they've decided recently to rig it, to tie it to the rate of inflation. So as we know, grocery prices are through the roofs, um, fuel prices, everything's up. And now, uh, now, unfortunately, your, your favorite uh, beer, wine, and uh, bottle of whiskey or vodka are going up as well. And I think it's a little bit of a sneak move, if you ask me, because, again, it's not on the sticker. It's something that is going to hit right at the beginning. It's an automatic tax. I don't think it even makes sense, if you ask me. But the way that they're going to do this one is they're going to hit you uh, at the beginning, at the distribution side. So by the time it gets to you and me at the uh, at the old store, we're not even going to see it on the receipt. It's just going to already be rolled in, isn't it? Absolutely, that's exactly it, Rob. It's um, it's it's sneaky in in several respects. Uh, first of all, this tax hike was actually brought in by Prime Minister Trudeau in the 2017 budget. And usually, when politicians raise taxes, they have to stand up in Parliament and vote on those tax uh, hikes so that they're accountable and that it's transparent. In this case, they've decided to rig it to tie it to the rate of inflation. Like I said, it's going to happen automatically. It's going to happen annually every year without even having a vote in Parliament. So there's that sort of undemocratic, sneaky angle to this tax hike. And then, like you say, you don't even see it. So the feds charge this excise tax, provinces charge consumption taxes, volume taxes, etc., markups. And then uh, what you do see at the liquor store is a sales tax, which is a tax on a tax. Uh, you know, to the point where I, I think you're right, Rob, not many Canadians realize that we're, we're among the very highest taxed on these products in the world, where when you go to a retail liquor store in Canada, about 50% of the price of your beer is taxed, 60 to 65% of that bottle of wine is taxed. And if you're like me, you like sipping a whiskey in the middle of uh, winter, um, 80% tax on that bottle of something like, uh, you know, a great Western bottle like Crown Royal. So, um, yeah, Canadians aren't aware of this, uh, but yet, you know, taxes continue to increase uh, under the radar as well. I think my frustration is if you look at what's gone on, particularly let's just stick to Canada here, even if you want to like really get down to the brass tax here in British Columbia, you think of everything that's gone on with the floods, the heat domes, the climate change. It's already a struggle for these growers when it comes to grapes to do business. Barley's gone up. Travel's gone up. Gas has gone up. The world's got it more expensive. Why on earth would the federal government think that this is the right time to add this 6% tax? Oh, it's a terrible time. Absolutely. It's the worst time, right? So these these excessively already high levels of tax, they're skyrocketing with this new escalator tax tied to uh, tied to inflation, the excess tax. So that hurts the consumer at the worst time. Uh, it hurts the taxpayer. It hurts all those great Canadian brewers, vintners, distillers who employ tens of thousands of Canadians and contribute billions of dollars to Canada's economy. It hurts 
the hospitality sector, the tourism sector, as these folks are still coming out of this roller coaster of a couple of years of pandemic rules. And it even hurts the ag value chain, you know, the folks growing those grapes and barley and rye and wheat for these these products. So it's, uh, you know, it's kind of adding insult to injury. And, you, you know, in British Columbia, there's a flourishing, exciting, uh, incredible wine industry there. Uh, when you're looking at already high levels of taxation going up even higher, those those Mediterranean countries like Italy and Spain and Portugal that compete, they don't even have a federal excise tax on wine production there. So we're already, uh, you know, behind the eight ball to begin with. And now uh, these taxes are going up even even further, putting putting these businesses at a competitive disadvantage as well as hurting the consumer. Maybe one thing that I could say is this is April 1st. You had mentioned that we've still got just over four months. Is there anything that can be done in between now and the first day of April to somehow find a way to stop this, freeze it, at least prolong the inevitable? Is there something that consumers can do or at least someone along the food chain could do here? Yeah, absolutely. I think I think consumers and taxpayers can vent. Um, you know, we we have a petition at taxpayer.com um, calling for an end to this undemocratic escalator tax on excise. Uh, as well, people can call your member of parliament. Um, these taxes are going up again without MPs even voting on this. They need to take that to the finance minister and finance committee uh, to, to deal with this. So send, an M- send your MP a note, call your MP, go to taxpayer.com, sign that petition, and uh, we can fight this uh, sneaky, uh, sneaky tax hike uh, for the new year. Robin, great insight. I appreciate you joining me this morning. Thank you for your time. Thanks so much, Rob. Take care. Rob Fan for Mike, one more hour to go, and we got a busy, busy hour in store for you. Before this is done, Mark Madriga, our global news meteorologist, is going to stop by, give you the latest from what's going on above. Dave Tomlinson, former Vancouver Cannot Caller commentator, now calls games for the Seattle Kraken, will stop by as well, and we will uh, get into the buzz line as well, which has been rather active today. But I don't know how many of you out there are into sports gambling or sports betting. It seems like you're just riddled with this when you watch games and what have you. And that's all fine and dandy now that it's all legal and on the up and up. But uh, with this cold weather, does it impact your betting or your prop bets? Matt Lee is a senior communication specialist with the BCLC. Matt, good morning. Good morning, Rob. How are you? Well, first things first, I want to ask your thoughts on SFU's new uh, name after they ditched the clan. What do you think of the Red Leafs? Oh, man, you know, I followed it closely, and I think the first thing that came to my mind, and I'm a, I'm a proud SFU alumni, <laughs> is you had one job, and I think there were some really great alternatives that were out there that I saw on Twitter, and, I mean, to me, it, it did feel like it missed the mark a little bit, uh, you know, I'm, again, I'm a proud SFU alumni, but uh, I think there were some options that they could have uh, taken more seriously, for sure. I wanted the Foxes. I thought the yeah. Foxes would have been perfect. but uh, It would have been a great uh, tribute to the Terry Fox family, of course, but, uh, you know, it's uh, the direction they went with, and, you know, I respect that. Onward and upward, as they say. Matt, um, it's a busy time of year for you because there's a lot of things going on when it comes to sports gambling, sports betting, but I want to talk about the the variables which Mm -hmm. to me in this instance and it's not just here in the pacific northwest we're talking almost across north america right down to georgia florida where they're getting cold weather as well how that affects gambling and how that affects betting and the fact that it does come into play can you explain to the listeners how that might be a component when you're when you're placing a bet 
Uh, you mean in terms of just the weather of all? Like, are we talking about the NFL? I mean, obviously, it's a, it's a busy it's week. It's an outdoor in the one for sure. Yeah. yeah. Let's let's talk NFL because I think that makes a lot of sense just with the, the outdoor component. Do you see that the uh, that people get a little more stingy with their betting because of those variables? Uh, you know, I think there are definitely people that think to themselves, you know, for example, I think Cleveland, for example, is one of the games that is looking like a very windy or very cold game between them and the Saints. Uh, you know, there might be players out there that are feeling a little more hesitant to place a prop bet because of the fact there could be a low-scoring game. But I think there are also some very savvy players as well that look at it as an opportunity. You know, there were probably instances where the line between the Saints and the Browns opened up in the 40s, and it has since dropped into the you know lower 30s. And so I think there are probably some shrewd players that placed an under bet when the line opened earlier this week. And since the forecast gets colder and colder, you're seeing players feeling a lot more comfortable about taking the under on those kind of bets. So the, it definitely there are some give and takes, I guess, to answer your question in terms of uh, how much the cold weather impacts in sports betting. I always think to myself when it's an outdoor team and a cold team like Cleveland taking on a dome team, yeah. that that's always a no-brainer to take the under. But uh, I've lost enough of those bets to know <laughs> to know that you still <laughs> got to look at the other variables. Do you find that just the um, the the sheer dollar value decreases on, you know, weekends like this where there's a lot of variables, like whether you're in Seattle, Cleveland, uh, you know, I know that Georgia plays in a dome, but I mean, I think of all of these markets right now, even Florida that is experiencing relatively cold temperatures. Do you feel that people mm-hmm. just, they, they stay away from betting on weekends like this? Uh, I, I wouldn't say necessarily, you know, I've looked at some of the numbers from the last couple of weeks and I know two weeks ago is maybe a different story than this weekend. But, you know, week 14 of the NFL season has looked generally the same in terms of volume and numbers of bets as it did in weeks four and five, for example. So you do see that consistent betting activity. You know, players are creatures of habit, too, if you will. And so they like to see a few games here and there where they might place some bets. You know, I might say that you might see more action on some of those dome games than you would some of the outdoor games. I think there will be some players that steer clear of the Seahawks against Kansas City in Kansas City this weekend, for example. But generally, the activity on the NFL stays the same throughout the season. Matt Lee with the BCLC stopping by. Uh, Matt, I want to talk about the UFC because I know they've gotten into a I don't want to call it hot water because, you know, obviously Dana White is hell-bent on saying that this is not an issue within the Ultimate Fighting Championship. But he's got he's to answer to some people right now that are talking about betting on matches that, you know, involve their own fighters. Is that something that you guys watch or observe or do you guys just wash your hands of the whole thing? Yeah, we, we certainly saw this uh, pop up a couple weeks ago, and you know we were aware of other jurisdictions that made that decision to stop offering bets on the UFC. And you know that always sparks a little bit of a review on our part to make sure that there was nothing untowards in terms of patterns of betting on play. Now, we looked at all of our bets on the UFC over the last couple months, didn't see anything amiss, but when you do see stuff like that that does sort of question the integrity of gambling um that makes uh that certainly pops up on our radar and you know we worked with uh, the gaming policy and enforcement branch to make sure everything was sort of in line and kosher and you know it's uh, something we monitor and we take seriously anytime there's a, a concern about gambling in uh, in any professional sport
Matt, a few of my friends come over and every once in a while we'll be watching the game and they'll be like, boy, every commercial break just seems like it's just inundated with sports betting commercials. And, you know, I understand that everybody's excited because in the last couple of years, the world's opened up here in Canada to sports betting. But do you feel that, you know, with the BCLC, it's a fine line between, you know, making sure that you're getting the message out, but just, you know, not over suffocating fans that maybe aren't gamblers per se? Yeah, you know, I'm glad you sort of raised this up because it's something that we've been asked every now and then as well from players is uh, what's with all the sports betting ads that we see, whether it's um, during NHL broadcasts or the NFL broadcasts even. And, uh, you know, you've brought up the fact that Georgia, for example, and other states in the U.S. have sort of opened the doors towards sports betting. And so we've seen that influx in terms of sports betting. And I think the important thing to note here is that playnow.com's ads, they still stay within gambling advertising standards, which means we don't go out to sort of flood the market with advertising. We've seen a lot of those ads online lately coming from places like Bet365 and other unlicensed websites that are not licensed to operate in BC. And Matt, before I let you go, I know the holiday season is a tricky one for you guys because there's a lot of things that you guys do to give back to the community. And I know that a lot of people don't hear this, but you guys give a a lot of money back to the community. But that said, it's also a time where people need to gamble responsibly and need to make sure that they're not going in over their head. And you guys have programs or are affiliated with programs that can address that, do you not? Yeah, I mean, on playdown.com, for example, we have gambling safeguards to make sure players are playing responsibly at all times. Um, you know, earlier this week, we launched our Gift Smart campaign, which reminded uh, British Columbians not to gift lottery products and lottery tickets to kids. Uh, so we are constantly striving towards making sure that players are playing responsibly, whether it's during the holiday season or the other 364 days of the year. Yeah, I think that's a message I wanted to make sure got out. Matt, thank you for this, and let's do this again. Thanks, Rob. Appreciate it.